Live from the NASDAQ market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Pete Najarian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Tonight on Fast, the man from Big Short fame is sounding the alarm. Danny Moses says there could be trouble brewing under the surface of this market. He'll tell us what he is seeing straight ahead. Plus, oil breaking out big time. Crude soaring above 100 bucks a barrel for the first time in more than seven years. Chartmaster Carter Worth is drilling down on where this trade is headed next. And we're all over the after-hours action in Nordstrom, Salesforce, AMC. They're all on the move right now as the calls get underway. We'll bring you the very latest on their quarters. But we start off with the sell-off. Russia ramping up attacks inside Ukraine, sending stocks spiraling. The S&P 500 down more than 1.5%. The Dow shedding nearly 600 points. This as the great rate route continues. Just take a look at the yield in the 10-year Treasury, hitting lowest level since January 5th. Rates were above 2% just last Friday, and that drop is having a big impact on the banking sector. Wells Fargo, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, all falling sharply again today. J.P. Morgan down nearly 8% in just the last two sessions. So what are these banks telling us? Is this just a reaction to the decline in the 10-year yield and, and what's going on with spreads? Or is there another message here, Karen, that we should, we should take? I think there's several messages mm-hmm. here. I think that one of them is, is what, what you said, right? But there's some other ones, too. And I think the most important to me is the potential for sort of a credit, I don't know, um, spillover, right? So as I go through and look at all the banks, I probably do what everyone's doing. You know, you put up the 10K, you put in the term Russia, and you see how many things come up, Right. Hopefully it gives you a little bit of comfort if there aren't any. But you can't help but worry about a credit contagion, right? We saw that in the great financial crisis. I feel like this time they are not as interconnected. But who knows? It's the kind of thing you don't really know who had all that exposure until after when the tide goes out. So I think that's part of it. It's the rates. I think it's also, is the economy going to slow here? Might loan growth slow? That could be a part of it. I think, obviously, the market being down. And then I think the last one is, to the extent these money center banks, like a city, uh, a Bank of America, a J.P. Morgan, to the extent that they have capital markets business, investment banking business, which they do, that is slowing. But, you know, I look at a name like Morgan Stanley down, I don't know, $21 or so from its recent peak. That seems to me to be overdone, given that the bank part that we're so concerned about for banks isn't as relevant to Morgan Stanley. This might surprise you, but I'm going to say all of the above and then (laughs) tack on the fact. I mean, listen, you know, we have an economy over the last two years that the banks were literally in the catbird seat, right? Look at the Fed, what they did in February of March of 2020, and then all the fiscal stimulus behind it, avoiding all the defaults, all the stuff that they might be kind of pricing in right now because of the uncertainty of the knock-on effects, what could happen with these sanctions and what it might mean for Europe's economy and the relation. It's not just European banks who are exposed to Russia or, you know, that's sort of, So there's stuff that could be happening here. Again, we don't know. I'll just make this one point, though, because you talk about interest rates, right? So we were just above 2% for the first time since the start of the pandemic. Well, when I go back and I think of the last two times the Fed has indicated that they were going to hike rates to fight inflation or to kind of starve off the kind of risk asset sort of bubbles that were being created, it was back in 2000. They were hiking 
into the top of the market there. Uh, Fed funds was above 5.5%, and the 10-year was above 6%. And then in 2007, same thing, they were hiking. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was above 5%. Well, here we are. We got above 2%. The stock market, the S&P 500, it's only down 10%. I mean, it's only down 10%. So if there's any of this stuff that materializes that we don't know could happen, well, the S&P 500 is just, it's got way more to go. I mean, in my opinion, I'm not saying it's going to crash, but look, those were protracted bear markets that saw kind of orderly sell-offs here. And I actually think this sell-off has been orderly. We've had some panicky days, but for the most part, it's felt orderly. Yeah. Um, you know, when you, when you take a look at the European banks team, and obviously they, they probably have the most exposure to Russia out of the banks in the, in the whole world. But, you know, when you see a, a huge decline, 7% or so in Unicredit, you see declines in Deutsche Bank. The muscle memory sort of makes you think, oh, wow, great financial crisis. And what and how does that connect to our financial system? A lot has changed since then. I'm wondering what what how you think about it and whether or not there are sort of spillover effects. Well, my muscle memory on European banks is also that that the the lower rate environment was was deadly for Deutsche Bank. And if you think about the, the rally that the European banks, they'd significantly outperformed U.S. banks uh, until about three weeks ago. And they were doing that because the 10-year bond had gone from deeply, deeply negative into, you know, 30, 40 BIP territory. Uh, the pullback in the 10-year here is the pullback uh, in interest rates across Europe. So that's my first uh, you know, kind of muscle memory. My muscle memory is also European institutions that do have credit exposure, have a lot more credit exposure than we do. And those money center banks in Europe have that much more exposure. And, and yes, look, uh, you know, banks that most people don't even know anything about, let alone know how to pronounce their names. Raiffeisen Bank, OTB in Hungary, um, Credit Anstalt, Unicredito. I mean, these are banks that have a lot of Russia exposure. And I think that that's something that, that clearly is playing out. Deutsche Bank historically and infamously uh, has been very much tied to Russia over the last couple decades. So um, those are the things I, I think we can't underestimate enough how everything is tethered to the tenure. So we, we've uh, you know, kind of peaked to trough here. Uh, somewhere down to 168 today. That's a, a 38 or 39 basis point move in the 10-year. And I think money center banks uh, price in Main Street, too. Remember in May of 2020 when other things were rallying and we didn't see banks and we were wondering what that disconnect was. Um, I think in the same way three weeks ago, certainly three months ago, we were saying banks could be defensive in a higher rate environment. I think they're feeling growth headwinds here. I think banks are feeling uh, a 9% move in oil and what that means both to some of their customers and to the consumer. I think banks are feeling, forget direct Russia exposure, but how about unknown and derivative exposure that we really can't quantify here? And I think those are the issues here. I think we're um, still very far away from a credit event, but we're all talking about this because it's real if you see a significant slowdown in the economy. Pete, yesterday you, you talked about oil and, and what that would mean for the consumer and for the economy and how oil prices that spike higher can't possibly be good. Is that what the banks in, in part are telling us here, that this is a headwind that will have implications on economic growth? I do think that's part of it, Mel. I think the other part of it is everybody was talking about credit expo exposure. Mm -hmm. I think that's huge. And, and also, let's add in the velocity of this move. I mean, I talk about it all the time, but I mean, we talk about volatility. Volatility is there. We popped all the way to 35 today before pulling back towards 33. But then you look at volumes. Volumes have been there. You look at the derivatives markets. We're well over 40 million contracts a day on average so far. That's huge. But the velocity of these moves is really something. And I talked about it last night, that, that last 22 minutes of the day yesterday, 
and then take a look at what happened with the 10-year today. I mean, that's a pretty dramatic move to watch the 10-year. Friday, we were just over two. Two days later, here it is Tuesday, and we're down there and we got underneath 1.7, as Tim's pointing out. So there's a lot of movement going on right now, and I think that is part of it as well, Mel. I think the combination of all of that is making the banks seem a little bit more fragile. And let's be honest, and I talked about this the other, uh, on the halftime as well. When you look at J.P. Morgan, it was stretched. No one wanted to admit it. It was trading over 160. We all love uh, Jamie Dimon. All that's all great, right? But at, at two times book, that becomes more and more expensive. So I think that there is a reason for some of these pullbacks, and specifically in some of the names, why they're pulling back even more than others. And it's not necessarily the Russia exposure. A lot of it, I think, has to do with the levels in which they had already reached, Mel, before they started this correction that we are seeing now. And we're in the midst of it, especially with all of this movement that we're talking about right now. And, you know, what is under the books? You know, it's not just credit exposure. It's exposure to a lot of different things. And we know that those exist. They They've existed in the past, and we've seen it with the white whales and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot going on, I think, within the markets right now, especially in the financials. Yeah, um, and when you say we all love Jamie Dimon, Karen had a big smile because you meant really especially oh, Karen I know Feinerman. <laughs> all right, let's read an investor who has successfully navigated the great financial crisis. Danny Moses, a big short fame, is founder of Moses Ventures. He's also co-host of the On the Tape podcast. Danny, great to see you. Um, you know, Pete was just you. talking about what is on the books and, and, you know, to the extent that Russia is on anybody's books. There are also um, possibly positions that have gone wrong, um, you know, on the part of many hedge funds out there. And we don't know how these financial institutions might be. Exp- I mean, when you see big spikes in oil, you see big moves in commodities. Someone's on the other side, on the wrong side of this trade. Correct. You only have me on in bad times. I look forward to coming on when things are good. But uh, that, that being said, yes, you can't have these types of moves uh, in rates, currencies, commodities without there being some, some type of damage. That's too much volatility. And this is the first time in a long time that we've faced this type of, of sustained volatility without the Fed having our back. And you think about it, all the liquidity that's been being pumped into the system that's found its way into various crevices and parts of the markets right now are really being exposed. And so this is not a healthy environment to be in. I think we're going to see whether it's loans to hedge funds, whether it's banks themselves. You know, certain banks are exposed in various areas that others aren't. Some are more focused on U.S. economy and the U.S. consumer. Some are international. So you're starting to see a little bit of bifurcation there. And the stocks are trying to tell you which which way that's going to go. So. So, hey, Danny, you know, I listen to your podcast and you've been talking for a while now that, you know, you don't think the economy is as strong as, let's say, some might suggest when you look at employment, where it is and that sort of thing. And so, you know, banks had spent, you know, a 2020, just building up reserves, right, for defaults and that sort of thing, and both on the consumer side and on the corporate side here, but they've released a lot of those reserves. So what is your sense for how the banks are positioned for some sort of unforeseen credit event? Because it seems like equity investors right now are kind of getting in front of that. Right. So banks generally trade with rates, right? That's kind of the go-to recipe for how the same way that energy companies trade with oil. But yes, things were already getting a little bit dicey before the geopolitical risk really came came really to the forefront here. And so things were already kind of set in motion. When you think about 2020, when the calendar, when the IPO calendar and Wall Street really shut down starting in the second quarter, last year was an easy comparison, right? 2021, I think, was record in most categories, IPOs and so forth. We are now facing very difficult comps. We knew that coming in. This has exacerbated many of those 
issues, right? So the economy was already, I think, on the precipice of slowing down. And Dan, you and I have talked about this before. I was never a believer that the Fed was going to go really more than three or four times. Anyway, I'm still a believer in that. I think they have to show a little bit of strength and do it. But when you start to pull that type of liquidity out of the market, that has that has some type of repercussion. And we have been, you know, a lot of money into the passive markets, which I know you guys talk about on this show a lot. People weren't doing kind of bottom up work. And now it's time to sharpen the pencil. So a lot of these issues were already here. And I think we're going to now it's going to be really examined closely. I I want to say one more thing in honor of Paul Volcker. Right. I don't think people have talked about this enough. Think about this. He passed away in 2000 in December 2019. Right. The Volcker rule changes were proposed in January 2020. They went into effect in July 2020. Well, the Fed was still printing money then, right, and putting a lot of money in in this economy. So there was a period of time where banks then got the green light to go and lend more into sectors. And that actually is something that I haven't heard anyone talk about. It'd be great to have him here to examine this and to, to deal with this inflation in the market as well. Um, so, so when you think about all these potential risks to banks, Danny, do you think about these as potential or do you think that they are actually there? And how do you think about trading this? So the banks, I think the large U.S. banks are going to be fine here. I mm-hmm. think they'll cut their losses. They'll deal with it. They're still, they're still very well reserved on the corporate level. Um, I think those will be fine. I'm sure we're going to see a couple of banks that have outsized exposure to something we haven't seen yet that's going to come back to us, whether it's in Russia or somewhere in Eastern Europe that we don't know about yet. Right. But that that I, that I can't tell you what's going to ha- what's going to happen there. But uh, I think from the consumer perspective, just to bring it back to what Dan was talking about, um, we are going to see, I think, a slowdown in, in consumer spending. We are going to see credit, which I think has peaked. I think people believe that. How much is a, is a consumer okay in the U.S.? Sure. But if oil stays at a sustained level and the Fed, I know we're having a you know, retrenchment in rates here, but if the Fed does start to raise rates, that all puts pressure on the consumer, especially those with floating, floating rate debt. So anyway, I, I, think it'll, I, I think we'll see this thing play out, but I do believe that um, the U.S. banks are very healthy in terms of their balance sheet. I don't think it's a contagion risk among those Wall Street banks. All right. Danny, great to see you. We'll try and talk to you when things are a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Danny please. Moses. Thanks, guys. All right. <laughs> Moses Ventures. Um, it sounded like Danny thought, Karen, that, that we are overestimating the strength of the consumer at this point. Is there anything that makes you think we, maybe we are? Maybe we're overestimating yeah. it. I mean, I guess we'll see retail sales, but I look at some of these names that are reporting and they're pretty good. Yeah. So I don't know if it's a question of confidence. That matters. Even if the consumer has money, confidence matters, and maybe this Ukraine you know, uh, situation may cause some um, to step back a little and just watch. All right. Let's get to the Fed here because rate height expectations are coming in, as you know. Let's bring in Steve Leisman for more. Steve. Hey, uh, Melissa, the decline in yields, which I think is pretty sure brought on by a Flight to safety is prompting a rethink of the outlook for the Fed. 50 basis points, that's out for March now, and more doubt has crept in about any hikes beyond three. But I just want to say investors need to be careful about making calls on Fed policy from big flight to safety swings. Just because a lot of people are scared to put money in treasuries doesn't necessarily change the, ca- the Fed's calculus. Uh, but take a look here. Fed funds nevertheless trading with a 100% probability of a March hike and only a 10% chance of that hike being 50. There are high probabilities for quarter point raises in May and June. But that's where the certainty ends. Probabilities for July and November, they're approaching only 50%. For the first time in a while, the six hikes now priced right out. All this comes with that sharp decline in bond yields you guys have been talking about. Ten-year since the Ukraine invasion, falling from 2% to now around 172 
That complicates the Fed's job. It's looking for tighter financial conditions to cool the economy. Uh, and now it, it really wants higher rates. Now it's getting lower rates. The war further complicates the job by pushing up oil and other commodity prices, while the Fed otherwise it might back off tightening because of geopolitical uncertainty. Well, the moving commodities forces their hands. And just one other thing, uh, get, get Tim to get his friends on the phone. I don't think it's crazy to think you have a lot of money in Russian assets looking for a new home. Maybe they landed in treasuries and helping those yields down today. Steve, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Well, so look, we I, I think you've got a case, Steve, hikes. where if you think... Oh. Karen, go ahead. Uh, one at a time. One at a time, okay. kids. Um, so we see, you know, a couple of rate hikes, whether it's four, five, six. I don't know. Does that matter as much as QT? And is QT now postponed? Is it uh, off the table for this year? What do you think the Fed is thinking about that? Well, I, as I've made the... Uh, um, the uh, asterisk that I put up on all these answers, I don't know what it means for values. I mean, you guys uh, are the experts on that. I mean, there's stuff that was trading crazy, and then the Fed was going to uh, uh, comes in and says it's going to hike rates, and some of that stuff comes down. You ask about the economy, I have no problem with a funds rate that's one, one and a half percent, and the Fed backing off the nine point nine or nine trillion dollar balance sheet. Uh, I don't think that's a problem for an economy sporting a 3.9 percent unemployment rate and with a 7 percent inflation rate where growth is going to be above trend or thought to be above trend for for this year. I don't think, Karen, that's a problem uh, for the economy. You just have to figure out, you know, are those those high flying stocks with a 1 percent funds rate rather than zero? Are they not worth 30 X? Are they now worth 20 X? You got to figure that out. Um, Steve, it's interesting that, you know, Jerome Powell is going to be on Capitol Hill. And this comes at a time when there is some commentary from other central banks around the world to the effect of this war is now a major concern. And maybe we we cool off on the hiking on the tightening um, until we finally see the assessment. Do you think there's going to be pressure on Powell to sort of reiterate or echo those sorts of sentiments or more pressure because, Gas prices are going to spike and the inflation um, boogeyman is looming over him. I think that's an excellent question. What I'm trying to puzzle through, Melissa, is does somehow this war reduce demand and consumer demand? Does it cool the economy by itself? Now, I'll be listening very carefully to how Powell thinks about oil prices because it's really a double edged sword. Oil price, higher oil prices are a tax. Um, They drive up the inflation numbers, but a lot of times it comes out of other places, especially when it gets high the way it is right now. So it could be reducing demand. I don't see a lot of ways when I look at the aggregate impact of the GDP of Russia and Ukraine on the rest of the world. I don't see a big impact on the U.S. I see a bigger impact in Europe, which is a second derivative impact on the U.S. So I I think the Fed's going to go about its appointed rounds uh, amid the status quo currently of this war. If something happens that dramatically reduces demand, if Russian oil is cut off, then I could see the possibility of, of maybe the Fed backing off. But I don't see them backing off given the inflation rates, given where they are, and, and frankly, given the strength of the economy. All right. Steve, thank you. Steve Leesman. Pleasure. Pete, how are you thinking about all of this? Well, you know, Steve mentioned the strength of the economy, and that's certainly something that I think we're all watching. We talk about oil as well, obviously, this demand. And it, let's all remember this now. This oil move started long before Ukraine, Russia, and all this has, has, has started to bubble up to where it is now, where we're, we're actually referring to it as a war. So 
I think that I think that makes things very, very complicated and very interesting to see exactly how Powell and the Fed wants to navigate through this. Obviously, they've they've taken some things off the table, but you know, it's it's it's. I think it's re- it's made it that much more difficult for them. There's no doubt about it. And and I think they they're really going to have to be measured here. And maybe it'll give them an excuse to step back again if this starts to escalate, especially. As, as Steve was just mentioning, we start to see something happen with oil and with what's going on with Russia. And then all of a sudden the demand is there for even more. And yet there's not enough. That's something that I think they're really going to have to be. It, it complicates everything. Um, let's let's play this game. I lay out the scenario and you tell me, Tim Seymour, what the market reaction would be. Powell goes on Capitol I'll Hill try. tomorrow and says and, and comes off as more dovish because of the war. Our markets do markets go up or markets go down in response to that? Markets go up. Uh, look, okay. because right now that Fed put, we all have probably a similar or, uh, you know, I, I'll take the Fed put down 20 percent from here. Um, I do think we we have the view that the Fed has to move regardless. And so uh, I, I, look, a, a more dovish Powell is what the market is is been reared on. And, and I think that's what they want to hear. You, you don't know my answer? It's down. It's down. It's always down. I just, I just, I just, I just, I just want to be really clear. Um, but no, I gave you the kind of eyes in the break there. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, listen, it's down because, A, the Fed loses their credibility. They already said what they're most focused on, which is inflation. Everything that's going on geopolitically only exasperates those issues of inflation. And I just want to say one thing. I take issue with this thing that the, the, the economy is so doing so well, that it's so good. I mean, we have trillions of dollars of fiscal and monetary over the last couple of years. The economy was already slowing in 2019 before the black swan pandemic here. And I believe that the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was at 1.53 just a couple months ago because it was signaling that the economy wasn't as strong as maybe that really great unemployment number was speaking to. So to me, I just don't really see it here. And I don't really see too many ways out right now for the economy, especially given the fact that the only thing the Fed can do that thinks they're going to help is kind of lose their credibility. Coming up, crude oil surging to its highest level in nearly eight years, but will the commodity continue to climb? Chartmaster Carter Worth will join us in a few to hit the technicals. Plus, we're all over the after hours action. Salesforce shares are on the move after its report. We'll break down the details next. Do not go anywhere. Fast Money is back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Salesforce. Shares moving higher after its latest report. The conference call is underway. Let's get to Deidre Bosa with the details. Debo. Well, Melissa, CRM upping revenue guidance for the first quarter and the full year, and that's helping to alleviate some worries about a pull forward of demand around its ecosystem. Co-CEO Mark Benioff just began the call on a somber note addressing the conflict in Ukraine, and he noted his personal connection, his great-grandfather, he says, immigrated from Kiev. He then went on to say that CRM had perhaps its best quarter in its history and that a significant number of employees are back in the office. Of course, a Salesforce tower here in downtown San Francisco. He also said that he believes COVID is behind us. Now, leading up to the results, one of the key questions around Salesforce and some of its software peers over the last few months has been whether the spending environment can be sustained post-pandemic. So there's better than expected results. And that positive revenue guidance may suggest to investors that the digital transformation theme is alive and well and CRM a key beneficiary. Still, though, shares are down about 17% year-to-date, underperforming the broader markets. We are seeing that pop, though, of nearly 4%, which could help alleviate that if it sticks. Uh, Lastly, guys, you can catch 
Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff, co-CEO Mark Benioff on Mad Money with Jim Cramer tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern. And as I uh, came to you, Melissa, he was just handing it off to his co-CEO, Brett Taylor. All right. Debo, thanks. Deidre Brosa, Pete, you in this one? I'm not in this one, Mel, and for the reasons that I, I look at the P.E., it seems like it's too high. I know it was way too high when it was over 300. It's pulled back to 211. It was just trading at the levels where it is right now about two weeks ago or so. But the biggest problem I have is, okay, so they beat on, on the revenue and the earnings, which is great, and we all look forward to that. But that's off of the guidance from last quarter when they lowered. So I know that they're looking forward and they're, they're talking about, you know, the guidance going forward looking very impressive. I think that's great. But at 45 times, 50 times earnings, I, I, I'm going to stay away from this one for now, Mel. It's got to get a lot more earnings power behind it before I get interested in Salesforce again. Hmm. Um, Tim, do you think this is uh, good news for the rest of the sector? Well, I, I think there's still some question about how, how much pull forward or how much essentially swapping out uh, in, in an operating environment where companies could spend on software. It made sense to spend on it. Um, and they, they had less overhead costs. I, I, I think they're still, hey, let's wait and see uh, where they are. This is a, uh, an improving operating margin story. They certainly raised operating margin 360 basis points on the guide. That's all great news. It was down 40 percent into this print. It's, it's, you know, it, this is not something that uh, we talk about the environment and the high multiple stocks. At, at seven times kind of EV to sales and you know, 30 times free cash flow, um, as Pete said, I, I, I think the market is not ready to say, you know, the, the worst is over. And, and I think it's a case where you're getting a, a relief on this number. You're getting a bounce after a 40 percent downtick into the print. But um, I think we still don't know where demand is. All right. We've got another earnings alert here on SoFi. Shares are jumping after a beat on the top and the bottom lines. Uh, Dan, you're in this one. You were in at a from a higher yeah. cost basis. Yeah, I mean, listen, this is one of the ones where, you know, it came public via a SPAC last year. It was kind of a new, fresh story. I mean, the disruption that some of these incumbents or versus some of these incumbents looked really interesting to me. And the story still looks interesting to me. The user growth, I think, was really important. I think that um, uh, earlier on one of the shows on the Closing Bell, they talked about that SoFi Stadium from a marketing standpoint. I was there. I went to the NFC Championship. You can't imagine what a great advertisement that is for the brand when they're trying to attract a new sort of customer. So, you know, that's great. It was a good quarter. I don't know if there's anyone left to sell the stock. That's like some of these stories have gotten so beaten down and the sentiment was so bad into them. They didn't do, have to do a whole heck of a lot for them to bounce right here. But what the guys were saying about Salesforce is also true in the fintech space. It's just going to take some time for investors to re-rate these stocks and get comfortable what the next couple of years look like, not really the next couple of quarters. When you look at a SoFi or a PayPal or an Affirm or any of these stocks in fintech, Karen, do you think they have re- they've certainly re-rated? Have they done it enough? I think not. When I think about a SoFi, they want to be your, you know, trading platform. They want to have your cash. They want to make loans to you. They want to help you with investments, kind of like a bank. And banks <laughs> traded a very, very different multiple than fintech. So even though they've come down, I still think that there should be a convergence between those well, two valuations. Except kind of like a bank. And one of the reasons why J.P. Morgan started getting nailed in January was because of those expenses, because of all of that incumbent cost that they have. And I think if you're investing in a company like SoFi, you're investing in the leverage that they're going to get going forward by not having all that incumbency and everything like that. So to me, that's the trade for like a five to 10 year sort of view. And that's why you will likely see a J.P. Morgan buy a SoFi ultimately, because they're going to do a lot of the hard work as they're unprofitable in this period of time where investors are at least willing to give them a pass. 
Pete, um, have you been active in any of these names that have just gotten decimated, the firms of the world and so on? Yeah. Yeah, some of them, Mel, and I have been in a firm. That one did not feel very good. Uh, fortunately, it was with options so that I at least had limited risk when I had the trades on. But SoFi's been a great trader, and, and I know you, you were talking about Dan owning it, but uh, as a trade, it's been fantastic. As a stock, obviously, the move to the downside has been very, very painful, and it's a nice big uh, jump today on these earnings. That's, that's great, but it has been a really difficult trade. It's been a fun trade, though, Mel. Uh, most of the time, but it, but it's not been easy, but it's given us opportunities on many occasions for very inexpensive options to become something of pretty solid worth in very short periods of time. Uh, we got some breaking news out of Washington ahead of tonight's State of the Union address. Let's get to CNBC's senior White House, House correspondent, Kayla Tausche. Kayla. Melissa, the White House is releasing excerpts from President Biden's first State of the Union address, which is taking place tonight on two issues that are expected to take center stage. First, the ongoing war in Ukraine and President Putin's rejected efforts at diplomacy. And second, on inflation. On that first topic, even as a Russian convoy uh, is outside of Kiev, uh, President Biden is expected to say throughout our history, we've learned this lesson when dictators do not pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos. They keep moving and the costs and threats to America and the world keep rising. He will say that Putin thought the West and NATO couldn't respond and instead NATO became more unified, that Putin was wrong and the U.S. was ready. On inflation, where President Biden is expected to lay out several policy actions that he plans to take to try to combat inflation, uh, he is expected to say this, that we have a choice. One way to fight inflation is to drive down wages and make Americans poorer I have a better plan to fight inflation, the president will say. Lower your costs, not your wages. Make more cars and semiconductors in America, more infrastructure and innovation in America, more goods moving faster and cheaper in America, more jobs where you can earn a good living in America. And instead of relying on foreign supply chains, let's make it in America. Of course, there have been many efforts to try to onshore a lot of that manufacturing. It would, would be expensive in terms of incentives and in terms of labor and has raised the question, Melissa, as to how much and how soon that would actually alleviate price pressures. We'll see what else the president has to say tonight at 9 Eastern time. Melissa. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. Kayla was running through um, what President Biden would say, and we we're just sitting up here on the desk just kind of scratching our heads. I mean, onshoring is more expensive. Things will be more expensive. Karen. Right. I, I mean, I would think that's a huge. Right. Well, we saw how offshoring made things a lot less expensive. Right. right. And so the reverse is true. However, there are strategic reasons that we've seen right. now uh, why mm -hmm. we do need to have onshoring. So that might be part of it. But to me, it does seem inflationary. Um, speaking of inflationary, crude oil prices spiking 10 percent today, topping $100 a barrel for the first time in seven years. The energy sector, the only one in the S&P to post gains today with names like Conoco, Pioneer Natural and Hess all hitting 52 week highs. But where are prices going from here? Let's get straight to Carter Worth of Worth Charting, who can help sort this out for us. Carter. Yes, please. Well, a uh, very hard subject and a very important subject. Um, let's go right to the charts and try to figure it out together. So the first chart here is the daily chart of WTI crude oil. And what we know is it has moved up and out of this, you can call it whatever you want. Some people call it a megaphone formation, but it's moved up and out of this formation. Now, today, a big low to high spread, up 12%, right? Closed at 103.40, having hit a high of 106.78. 
95 on the low. And so the question is, is this the beginning or the end of the run? Uh, let's look at the next chart and maybe we can figure it out. So this is an all data chart going back to the 1980s. And what is clear is the two sort of outlier events. You see the spike in 2008, that was in July when crude hit 147 a barrel. And of course we see the reciprocal collapse, the COVID low when actually crude went briefly negative and as negative as $40 a barrel. The way I've drawn the lines anyway, the upside, and it's not much actually, gets you to maybe 112, 114. So the real question is, we're, 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 we're full. Now here's a comparative chart on the screen, that's oil versus the energy sector. Look at the next chart. It's the same comparative chart, but it's a little bit longer term. This is since 06. They obviously track one another. One more comparative chart. This goes back to the year 2000. But what you see is the overshoot and the undershoot is the orange line. That's the commodity. That's oil relative to the stocks. And so two more charts and then let's try to tie it all together. This is the entire history of the S&P 500 energy sector. Obviously dominated by Exxon and Chevron, but others in it. Now. Let's look at the same thing another way, final chart. This is, it's a ratio. All it is is the relative performance of that preceding chart of the energy sector to the S&P 500 since GICS data begins in 1989. And here is the interesting thing, and you can see where the line is drawn. Relative performance of the energy stocks made it low in 1998. Crude was $10 a barrel. Dot-com was all the rage. And of course, from there, it all reverses. Energy stocks outperform the S&P dot-com underperformance. We are now, after having collapsed, quietly approaching that line. I think that's about where it peters out, runs out of gas. Uh, Carter runs out of gas. Nice one. Thank you, Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Pete, I think you disagree. You like these energy names. <laughs> yeah, I've been disagreeing for a while with a lot of the people that are pushing against the price of oil, Mel. I, I still think that there's room to the upside. Obviously, this is the, the first or second time now that we've crossed over the 100 mark over the last couple of days. And I think, it, I think there is a little bit more room to the upside. And with the added side of what's going on, I think, with Ukraine, Russia, I think that that's just one more element. But there were plenty of different reasons why this was already moving to the upside. I continue to think demand is going to be there. And I, I tell you what, I am, my biggest concern is the price is at the pump. And the one way I'm defending against that is I have so much oil exposure right now and it's been working to the upside. You just have to be disciplined. But every single day, I add more and more and more oil to what I've got in terms of representing my, my portfolio. And right now, it's probably at the highest level that it's been in over two years. Hmm, that's an interesting hedge against <laughs> paying more at the pump. Um, Tim Seymour, <laughs> where, where are you in oil? And, and how are you feeling about this notion of petering out on the equity side of it? Well, I think energy equities today showed that there there really is some concern that you could be destroying some demand. And I, I you know as you get to higher oil prices, uh, I actually tend to agree with Pete in terms of the 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 underlying commodity. Uh, I I see both structural dynamics in terms of a lack of investment. I I see supply disruption dynamics that are obvious. I see uh, a tactical allocation here, and I I see inflation more broadly that continues to rise. I I think oil is going higher. I think it's uh, not about to peter out, and I I think that. Ultimately, there will be demand destruction, but that's after we've we've taken this thing higher. Look, the integrated names look great. I also think you want exposure to U.S. LNG and and that gas, but especially LNG, uh, especially that that can be exported over to Europe. So look at Chenier, look at other plays uh, across the board where I, I think they've actually been able to ramp up production. 
All right, coming up, the earnings keep rolling in. Shares of Nordstrom and AMC on the move after reporting their results. The details next. Plus, bullseye for Target. The retailer surging nearly 10% today on the back of its earnings. We'll break down that jump when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Nordstrom shares surging after reporting. Let's get to Courtney Reagan with all the details. Court. Hi, Melissa. Yeah, the share move is honestly really eye-popping, though it is worth remembering how far these shares have fallen. They're down about 49% in just the past year. Still, Nordstrom put up a strong holiday quarter, beating on earnings and revenue and growing margins five percentage points. Now, the wrap business did see sales fall 5% compared to the same quarter pre-pandemic, but they have improved sequentially over the last quarter or so. On the call, CEO Eric Nordstrom said that the company does plan to grow Grow rack profitably and said they won't be satisfied until that happens. Now, the earnings guidance for the current year far exceeds consensus with stronger sales than analysts had forecast as well. I think that's what investors are really pulling on those shares up 35%. And while digital sales fell 1% compared to holiday 2020, for the fourth quarter. Digital sales did grow 23% if you compare it to the holiday quarter of 2019 pre-pandemic, making up 42% of total sales for the year. It's an important number to watch as Nordstrom really moves to sort of pull stores and online together in one big cycle. Now, beauty, home, and active were among those uh, categories called out as winners. The core categories, though, like shoes, still below pre-pandemic levels. Inventory levels at the end of the quarter were higher than planned as a result of better supply chain outcomes than anticipated. And executives were talking about on the call bringing those inventories lower and more in line with sales. Melissa, back over All to right. you. Court, thanks. Courtney Reagan. Um, also, let's uh, take a look at Target while we're at retail. Topping the tape today, jumping nearly 10% on the back of its reports this morning. The company saying sales growth jumped by 9%, expects that growth to continue post-pandemic, and that was the concern. Can all these improvements, operational improvements that were, you know, on underway pre-pandemic, all the share gains, is that sustainable? Pete, I guess, I guess this proves they are. Yeah, and, and they, they absolutely prove that it's sticky. They've still got plenty of growth, Mel. You look at the digital as well as the traffic, much better than Walmart. Their numbers just are extraordinary across just about every metric. I think the most important for me was we all know that there's grocery at both Walmart and, and, and Target and those types of stores, right? But that's not where the margin is. That's not where Target wants to be, so that's a smaller piece. It's about 20% where they really saw some great growth, not just grocery, which was double digits, but in apparel, which is also double digit growth. And that's important. So I think when you look at that quarter, it's pretty extraordinary. I'm surprised that the stock pulled back as much as it did, but that was a huge move initially. So I would expect to see this stock start creeping up a little bit higher over time. 15, 16 times PE, it's way too cheap still. Yeah, I agree with everything Pete said, but I want to add on. So just the idea that the growth was over, that this was a pandemic winner, Mm -hmm. and so we shouldn't think about them as growing anymore, they really threw cold water on that. So when they traded a below-market multiple, and yet they're telling you they're going to grow, and they're going to improve their margins, that's a good recipe, particularly for, I mean, we've seen them execute, so they deserve the benefit of the doubt. All right. Coming up, what worked in today's sell-off, China Tech in rally mode. We're breaking down that trade ahead. But first, we're all over the after-hours move in AMC. Shares are 
Where are they? Higher after reporting? Yep, they're still higher. You never know with this one. <laughs> the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. We've got an earnings alert on AMC. Check out the shares. Uh, they're up by just seven-tenths of percent off the after-hours highs following the latest earnings report. The conference call just kicked off at 5 p.m. Eastern. Julie Borson's in on the action here. Julia. Well, Melissa, AMC shares are up slightly after the theater giant's revenue beat estimates $1.17 billion ahead of the $1.1 billion that analysts had estimated as Spider-Man helped drive performance in the fourth quarter. Now, AMC reporting a loss of $0.26 per share and an adjusted loss of $0.11. It's unclear which one is comparable to analyst estimates. AMC CEO Adam Aaron noting that 2021 was another year of continuous recovery as theaters reopened and the number of release titles increased. He also noted that the company hosted 60 million people in the fourth quarter and that average revenue per patron was more than 25% higher than in the fourth quarter before the pandemic began. Aaron saying, quote, AMC is no longer on its heels as COVID case numbers are finally declining and vaccination numbers are increasing as our operating results are markedly improving and as our healthy liquidity allows, AMC is playing on offense. Again, Aaron's saying that while there's work to do, they are on an upward trajectory, saying that they expect the first quarter to be above 2021 levels, but that it to be re- will be relatively weak, followed by stronger performance for all of 2022. Just want to note here that Aaron talked about all the different ways they want to transform the company to be more than just a movie theater operator, including with NFTs, saying that the Spider-Man NFT was a success and they have more NFTs in the works, saying that NFTs are actually a driver of attendance, Melissa. They also talked about cryptocurrency and how they're going to be introducing the ability to transact in other cryptocurrencies, including Dogecoin and Shiba Inu. He did not have an update on whether they plan to introduce their own cryptocurrency, but certainly a lot of enthusiasm in that arena. Melissa? And then there's the popcorn sales, of course, Julia. I can't <laughs> wait for the breakout on that. Um, Julia Borson, thank you. Pete, I know you've dabbled in some of these quote-unquote meme stocks in the past. What have you seen lately in terms yeah. of activity? Because it's really been just a downward slide for the stock since, since July or so, June. Yeah, and going, to, yeah, and going from September, Mel, it was a $50 stock, and it's been in the teens for quite a while now as well. I mean, it's been sold off. It still has a huge short interest. We are not seeing anything close to the kind of numbers as a meme stock that it did you know, a couple of years ago when it was really absolutely on fire and making those moves, it still has $9 billion in net debt at the company. So um, as a trade, absolutely, I would jump on this as a trade with options only. But to hold this stock, I don't see the, the reasons that would ever put me in a position to be holding this stock. It's still in trouble, I think, to some degree. And, you know, it's, it, these earnings are, are, are modestly, I guess they're better but they're still pretty bad. And this is a company that um, I think is in a really, really difficult spot right now. And, it, I, and obviously with the streaming and all the competition that's out there, it just makes this a very interesting trade. But uh, I certainly wouldn't own this stock. All right. Coming up, a big bounce for Baidu. The Chinese tech stock surging in today's session after reporting earnings. And that had options traders piling in. We'll tell you how they're playing this one. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the big bounce in Baidu. Investors piling into the stock and the options following a big earnings beat. Let's bring in Mike Coe for the action. Mike. Yeah, we saw a lot of options activity in Baidu today. It traded four times its average daily call volume, over 50,000 con- call contracts in total. A lot of that was short-dated upside call buying, but one of the more active contracts seeing opening activity was the April 170 calls. We saw over 3,200 of those trading for just over nine and a half bucks. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting the stock will exceed that strike price by at least the premium that they spent. That would be an increase of over 10% over the course of the next six weeks. Um, Tim, what do you make of this one? They had a lot of positive commentary regarding advertising growth being restored, et cetera. I mean, some good commentary from the quarter. Yeah, they have gone through a difficult period in terms of ad growth, slight declines that have stabilized and and look like they may be starting to inflect. The stock also could be starting to inflect. It's been it's been consolidating somewhere around this 160 to 170 range since all the way back to August. They also have commercialization of robo-taxi on the horizon, and that, that could be a driver for the stock. The, the entire Chinese internet space has been under pressure from you know, Big Brother, and, and I think that's one of the biggest issues. Baidu, uh, I think their core business is getting healthier in an environment that in China, I think, at least cyclically, uh, the worst was probably last year. The worst being the Beijing crackdown. Um, Karen, do you the have Beijing the courage? Crack- yeah, yeah, go ahead, Tim. Finish your thought. Well, I was just going to say that, but also when you think about the, the economic headwinds, not only just from COVID, but um, where the central bank has been in there stimulating, they'll actually be one of the central banks this year that's actually cutting to support uh, the mm. economy. I think people are concerned about growth. They're doing everything they can to support it. Um, Karen, would you get back into Baba? No, I don't, just the <laughs> psychological damage would be too much for me. PTSD, huh? Uh, it's pretty strong. Mike Coe, thank you. My co with the action. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, we got your final trade. Do not miss our special coverage of the State of the Union starting 8 p.m. Eastern right after the news with Shepard Smith here on CNBC. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. T-Mobile, this isn't just an EBITDA growth story, but it's a free cash flow story. Check it out. Pete Nigerian. I'm going to give you a front line. It's shipping and transportation of oil. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, this is one we talk about a lot. Short the HYG. If we get into credit crisis or inflation, this could work on the short side. Dan Nathan. Yeah, I have a special final trade today to a very special guy, my dad. He turned 80 today, and he's watched every episode of Fast Money I've been on for 11 years. He watched every episode of Options Action that was on for 10 years. So happy birthday, Dad. Um, Very special one. And I'm with Carter on the USO. That's the oil ETF. I'm a seller. Happy birthday to Mr. Nathan. Thank you all for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.